Well, we continue our 1 Timothy series. We're really marching on through this letter now. So we're heading to 1 Timothy chapter 4, hoping to finish out the chapter today. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, have them open up in front of you at 1 Timothy 4. Having set up sound doctrine, sound conduct and godly leadership, we learned last week that Paul's defence of such foundational elements to the church was the guarding and the proclamation of the gospel. It was through a firm grip in scripture that we are able to be the church that God expects. We also saw how some church leaders had decided to divert away from these simple truths, taking on demonic doctrines and spreading division amongst the church. Again, the defence against such demonic movements is to have a firm grip on scripture. Time and time again, Paul is making the point to Timothy and really to each one of us that knowledge and understanding of scripture will not only help us in our walk with Christ, but it will direct the church in its activities to be God honouring. As we move into today's passage, we see Paul taking a bit of a different slant than the previous chapters. Most of the previous chapters dealt with the big picture and how it was taught, explained and applied to the church. Now Paul is going to talk directly to Timothy as the pastor of the church. You see, Paul has dealt with the church in the big picture. Now he needs to deal with the individual in Timothy. Now, some of you may think we can ignore this section for it's all about Timothy and we can just not really take anything from it. But remember, it may have been written for Timothy, but it's written to us in the complete canon of Scripture. Meaning we can find biblical principles in this passage that not only applies to pastors and church leaders, but applies to each one of us as individual followers of Christ. So what are we actually going to see in the passage today? Well, I think it can be summed up with this quote from Mark Owen. A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before the Almighty God, that he is, and no more. Paul is going to show that for the church to truly grow and truly be blessed by God, we must individually pursue godliness. Pastors and leaders are to set the example, and we'll see that in the instructions for Timothy, but each one of us is called to live a holy, godly, and pleasing life before our Saviour. It's not about how successful we are. It's not about what the world sees, but rather it's about what God sees in our heart. Are we faithful to the core? Are we pursuing Christ with all we are? Do we live and breathe and sleep the kingdom of God? For we're ultimately nothing without God seeing our hearts and our hearts being pure before God. It doesn't matter what credentials we have or accolades we've obtained because God doesn't look at these. Rather, he looks at the faithfulness to the call of Christ Jesus. So with all that said, we're going to delve into our passage today, seeing what Paul has to say for Timothy and therefore what we can learn from it from these biblical principles. We're heading to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and we'll begin in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul refers back to the verses of 1 through 5, namely those demonic doctrines that spread around by human agents when he refers to, if you put these things. These people spread lies and deceit because their consciences have been seared. We learned that last week. They've departed from their faith and therefore they actively seek to weaken the church. Now, Timothy is to put before or to point out the clear warning that some will seek to look spiritual, but inwardly are wanting to destroy the church. And who is he to tell? Well, it's noted here as brothers. In the CSB, it's noted as brothers and sisters. And in other translations, it's noted as brethren. Essentially, Timothy is to gently persuade the church family 
that there are wolves in sheep clothing amongst them. They must be alert and guard the gospel. I'm reminded of Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. To warn the church and to put before them the truth of these demonic doctrines will lead Timothy to be a good servant. The word here for good in the Greek is kalos, which means noble. The same term we saw at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3 in that pursuit of the role of overseer. Now the word for servant is diakonos, but not in its specific application for deacon. Rather, it refers to someone who serves on Christ's behalf. What makes Timothy noble and a person that serves on Christ's behalf is his boldness to warn the church against demonic doctrines, even pointing out the false teachers and seeking them to be silent. However, I want you to notice this. It's all in Christ Jesus. You see, you can be humble, servant-hearted, even bold, but these things in themselves do not make you a good servant. To be that, you need to do it in, through, and for Christ Jesus. And where's Timothy going to get all this boldness from to denounce demonic doctrines? Well, he's going to get it from the words of faith. Having been a student of the word, Timothy will know what good doctrine is. More than that, he's going to know how to apply it to individual lives and the principles to the church correctly. He has followed the words of God, therefore he will know what is contrary to it. Which means we're reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It is scripture that guides us to know what is right and wrong, and it's therefore from scripture that Timothy and each one of us can call out false and demonic doctrines. Which does beg the question, how well do you actually know your Bible? I'm not talking about whether you can produce an argument or hold a position. No, I'm talking about whether you're a student of the word and therefore being able to defend what is sound doctrine and point out what is demonic doctrine. You see, Paul was a student of the word, so was Timothy. And we are each called to be students of the word here in this passage. Let's head into verse 7. Having nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather training yourself for godliness. Having established that foundational calling to push out false doctrines, to, to call out false doctrines, to remove demonic doctrines from the church, we're now called to be students of the word. Yet on the flip side, what Paul is saying here is that we also need to avoid such doctrines infiltrating the church in the first place. To have nothing to do with them simply means that we're to completely reject and have absolutely no interest in these demonic doctrines. We're to completely reject irreverent and silly myths. A myth is a story or a fable with little evidence to support it. To be irreverent is to be radically different from the truth. Timothy, therefore, is to lead the church and lead the church today through the word of God to reject radical and silly stories that have no biblical evidence. As J.C. Ryle once said, and he says it in a really simple and clear way, let us receive nothing, believe nothing, follow nothing which is not in the Bible, nor can be proved by the Bible. Do you see, Paul has a two-pronged approach here. We must preach sound doctrine in complete boldness, pointing out those demonic doctrines and pointing out what is truth. And we are to completely reject the nonsense that false teachers will spout. 
And remember I said earlier in this series that the letter of Jude shows us that false doctrine is not only from the pulpit, but it can be found in the lives and conversations of fellow believers in Christ. Therefore, we're to speak and engage in sound doctrine and we're to reject silly, irreverent conversations with those who seek to bring new thinking with no evidence to ultimately twist and contort the word of God to fit with their demonic desires. Now, rather than pursuing the nonsense of false teachers, we're instead to train ourselves in godliness. The word train here can also be translated to mean discipline. It speaks of a rigorous and self-sacrificing training. It's like the athlete that forgoes extra hours in bed to get up early and do another morning training session. Or those who go into the military who go through a gruesome base camp training. Or those who seek to become a doctor or a lawyer. They give up luxuries, they sacrifice time, they go through hundreds of hours of training to attain their goal. This isn't referring to a quick jog followed by a Starbucks and a cake. It's a whole life commitment. However, we're not talking about physical training here, we're talking about spiritual training here. We are training for godliness, for the spiritual virtue, that right standing before God. We're training to consistently have a right attitude before our Heavenly Father. Godliness is the heart and soul of Christian character. It is what is produced through daily sanctification. It's the outworking of the Spirit transforming our lives. Uh, put it in another way, a lack of godliness will likely lead to an increase of sin, where an increase of godliness will likely lead to a decrease in sin. And a great passage really to see the outworking of this is found in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits on the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." We are to rigorously and sacrificially train ourselves in godliness. Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness of, is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Bodily training, the going to the gym, the regular running and the eating healthy is of some value. Again, really important to see this. Paul is not saying that it does not have value. This verse should not be messed around with and twisted to say that God doesn't care about how we look after ourselves. It is of some value to care for our bodies and our health. However, it is only some. Where training in godliness has eternal value. You see, bodily discipline brings positive outcomes in this earthly life. However, godliness brings positive benefits for life here on earth and for our soul in eternity. So emphatic about this, Paul declares in verse 9 that this is a trustworthy saying and one that deserves full, unquestioning acceptance. It is clear, pursuit of godliness has huge eternal value. And I want to make sure that you see this, that we don't just jump the gun and forget verse 7. Training in godliness is a whole life commitment. It's hard work, it's rigorous and it's sacrificial. Godliness and its eternal benefits don't come through half-hearted, barely there, apathetic responses. Which therefore leads us in to verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. 
To this end, meaning for the sake of godliness, we toil, which comes from the Greek word kapayo, meaning to work to the point of exhaustion. For the sake of godliness, we strive, which means we struggle forward in agony. Do you get this? Godliness doesn't come to those who shoot up a quick prayer, read a quick verse or two, and then forget all about Jesus and the rest of their day. Godliness comes to those who train in the word of God, who labour as students of the word, who work in serving the Lord to the point of exhaustion and who struggle no matter what the agony is and no matter what the suffering is for the sake of Christ Jesus. Now it's interesting, over the last five years I've undertaken the Read Through the Bible in a Year programme. For the last two years I've been leading Lincoln Baptist through the same programme, adding in daily devotions really to help apply each day's readings. Over these last five years I have had countless people say that they couldn't hack it, they couldn't stick to it, they would get a few days behind and then that was it, game over, no longer reading the Bible for them. I've heard people say that they're not really readers. They don't really have much interest in reading or they just prefer a one verse a day approach because daily reading is just too much. Now the common thing in every one of these excuses is the lack of understanding that to no longer be a student of the word is to cease the pursuit of godliness. Paul clearly shows us the direct link between sound doctrine found in a firm grip of the scripture and the training in godliness. Do you realise your I can't read the Bible every day because I spend too much time, say, on Facebook or social media, is actually saying I no longer wish to toil, to labour, to strive for godliness. And if that's what you're saying, then you've completely missed out on the second half of verse 10. Why are we students of the word? Why do we toil? Why do we strive? Because we have our hope set on the living God. We labour in light of eternity. Not for eternity, but because of eternity. We get our eyes of the nonsense in this world, of the distractions of the devil that he puts in our lives, and we place them on the eternal realm with Christ, the living God. We push forward because Jesus brings us hope. If only we would lift our eyes of what is happening on social media. If only we would lift our eyes off the pursuit of earthly gain. If only we would lift our eyes off our bank balance. If only we would lift our eyes off personal pursuits. We would see the living God securing eternity for us, making the toil and pain completely worth it. Now at the end of verse 10, we have this slightly confusing statement. Who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe? Does this mean that everybody has already been saved? Does this mean some form of universalism? Does this mean there is no hell? The quick answer to this today is no to all three. We take saviour to mean salvation, but it can also mean deliverance. Jesus is the saviour to all mankind in that he sustains life to give an opportunity for salvation. He delivers life to give an opportunity for salvation. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is graciously sustaining life so that you would find even greater hope in him, the hope of eternity with our Lord and Saviour. When we do just a little bit of digging here in verse 10, we see this wonderful beauty of the Lord's grace and the very reason we toil and we labour not in vain because we are leading people, delivering people to Jesus through an example of being sound in conduct, sound in doctrine and a godly leadership so that they might be saved 
and delivered from this world into the eternal. Verse 11, command and teach these things. The pastor, the elder, the Bible teacher is to teach with authority from the authority of scripture and for the sake of Jesus. They're to teach the pursuit of godliness. They're to teach against apathy. They're to teach the truths of the scripture. They're to teach that it's completely worth it to get into the trenches and to train with rigorous and relentless passion for the sake of godliness. Yet in this simple verse, we also see that it's more than that. It is to be commanded of the church. The church is commanded to reject false teaching. The church is commanded to be students of the word. The church is commanded to train in godliness. The church is commanded to place its hope in the eternal living God. The church is commanded to teach sound doctrine and point out demonic doctrines. You see, I tell you this, verse 11 flies in the face of all those who would wish for a palatable, soft, genteel approach. It weakens the arguments of the keep society happy approach and it emboldens the faithful in Christ because it's a direct command from God to do these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You see, this is serious stuff that Paul is instilling into Timothy. He's going to go toe-to-toe with false teachers and he's going to awaken up those that are apathetic in the church. However, some are just going to say that this is just a young man talking out of turn. It is just youthful energy and zeal. Some may even go as far as to say that this is youthful arrogance or immaturity speaking. You see, Timothy is in his early 30s, much younger than the Apostle Paul, who's now in his 60s, and certainly a few decades younger than the elders of the church. He would have very little respect from his elders. He wouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt. Instead, he would be mistrusted and scrutinised all because of his age. And if you don't believe this, I have lived through this myself. Having entered ministry in my early 20s, I've seen this firsthand for myself that because of a young age, many older individuals do not give respect and the benefit of the doubt. Yet to combat such views, Paul has a plan. As John MacArthur said, the single greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. The opposite is true. The word of God preached is undermined if it does not follow a godly life in the preacher. Therefore, the biggest, greatest tool in the leadership belt is an exemplary life. To offset the lack of respect given to Timothy, he must ensure that he is an example, which comes from the word tupos, which means to set a model for life. And he does through five specific characteristics. Number one, speech. Our speech and words that we use are to reflect our hearts. Anger, slander and false doctrine should never be spoken by a godly character. Words are given for encouragement and for the building up of others. If it does not build up, it therefore tears down. And if it tears down, it is not the speech of a godly individual. Consider Matthew 12 and from verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. The second area that Timothy is to concentrate on is conduct. Timothy was called to live a biblical and holy life in every aspect. 
We've already seen this in chapter 3, but we also see it in James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Thirdly, Timothy is to show an example in love. A godly character will give time, energy and resources for the sake of serving others. No personal sacrifice is too great for the sake of love. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Timothy is to set an example in faith, which ultimately refers to faithfulness and commitment, the ability to keep strong in the faith. Consider 1 Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. How do you become trustworthy? You show faithfulness and commitment. And then number five, he's to accept the example in purity. And Paul is specifically considering sexuality to be pure in sexual conduct. We must heed 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So you see, it is true that Timothy had no respect given because of his age. But his response was not to demand it or to say that his age doesn't matter. Rather, his response should be one of setting an example before the church. As those older and supposedly wiser look on, what they will see is not only sound doctrine preached, not only demonic doctrines denounced, but they would see a life that is a tupos, a model in which they can follow. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the kings of elders laid their hands on you. It seems that it was always Paul's intention to return to the church in Ephesus. But until he does, Timothy is commanded to continue in the labour of seeking revitalization in the church. To do so, he needs to devote and continually labour in three key areas. In the reading of scripture, literally meaning to read scripture in a public forum. To exhort, meaning to challenge through application. And to teach, meaning to systematically explain the word of God. Do you see here that central to public worship of the church and central to Timothy's ministry is the word of God. Studied, read, preached and taught. This is the spiritual gift that has been given to him. It's been confirmed by others and encouraged by the council of elders. Timothy is to study, to read, to preach and to teach the scriptures. And I've hoped you picked up on this theme throughout this series. The word of God combats false teaching and propels the believer in the training of godliness. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Timothy is to be single-minded. He's to be entirely focused on the task of leading the church in sound conduct and sound doctrine. He's to plan, develop, train and implement an environment centred on the principles of teaching the word of God. He's to be immersed in it, completely consumed by it. Consider 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy is to be ready Every day, no matter the season, no matter the situation, he is to be ready to preach the word of God. He is to be an example to the church of forward progression in the ministry of the word. Now, as we come towards the end of the sermon, and we've really worked our way through this passage, you'll notice I've not yet jumped into verse 16, and that is because I want verse 16 
to be our application today. You see, we've gone through the passage, we've seen the need to train for godliness, we've seen the need to denounce demonic doctrines, and we've seen the need to set an example before others, which ultimately means where our heart is in reflection of the Word of God. So we've seen those needs, but how do we actually apply that to each individual? Well, I'm going to take verse 16 as our application point. And ultimately what I'm saying is that verse 16 is to cut to each one of our cores, to cut to our hearts, to our minds, to our very souls. And we're to take verse 16 and we're then to live that out over the next week and over the next season of our life. So let, let me read verse 16 to you. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What have we seen in this passage? The need to rigorously train for godliness, the need to ensure our knowledge and understanding is growing in Christ Jesus, the need to defend the gospel by living out as an example with lives noted for godly characteristics and the need to devote ourselves to continuous study, proclamation and teaching of the word of God. And all of this is then summed up in verse 16. The application is to watch our own lives and how we handle the word of God. As we watch our lives, we seek to place our lives in the hands of God and model the characteristics he expects of us. When we persist in doing so, not only do we ensure our own salvation is being worked out before Christ, but as others look upon us and as others hear us talk in certain ways, they are then led to Jesus, finding salvation and a new life. You see, it always boils down to the heart and the example you are setting. If our hearts are for Christ, then they are for his word. And if our example is for godliness, then others will be able to model our behaviours and live a godly life. When we slip in our own conduct, in our own study, then the whole church is impacted. Remember the big picture, the whole church reflecting Christ is made up of the individual members reflecting Christ. If but one of us in the body of Christ begins to reject these truths, then we'll all be impacted and the gospel ministry comes under question. So the encouragement today is to remain resolute and focused on Jesus so that the church may be presented as a godly witness. To do that, each one of us needs to look at our own lives, concentrate on the study of the word of God and ensure that we live with godly characteristics. We're not to look sideways. We're not to compare to others. We're not even to play spiritual basketball and throw this challenge to somebody else. Today, we're to make this day a commitment to devote ourselves to Christ, his word and the pursuit of godliness. You see, if we slip, if our behavior, if our conduct, if our doctrine, if our leadership slips, then the world looks upon that and sees an ungodly characteristic and therefore does indeed follow demonic doctrines and therefore, we are called individually to rigorously pursue godliness so that we can set a tupos, a model of life that is Christ-centered, focused on the word and with our hope on the living God. That's a big challenge. And so let us now, as the church, pray for one another to take up that challenge and to live that out this week. Let's pray. Father, we hear the challenge. We see it to rigorously pursue godliness. Father, we hear the challenge to study your word. Father, we hear the challenge to remain focused and resolute on Jesus. And Father, we recognise how difficult that is for us. 
we are so easily tempted away, so easily distracted. And so, Father, I pray for the church today, here in Lincoln and further afield, that we would be strengthened, that we would have the mighty forces of Christ around us, that we would be an example, a witness in our situations, in our communities, in our church family of what is godly, holy and pleasing before our Saviour. Father, we pray that as we seek to do this, the kingdom of God would expand, that many would be added to the number of those who believe in Christ because they have seen and heard the example and they are compelled, they are drawn in to Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we would take it very seriously to watch our lives, to watch our doctrine, for we know our salvation will work through that and others will be saved also. And so, Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.